Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew Henry, the Puritan preacher once wrote, What peace can they have who are not at peace with God? And so what is peace? I mean, what do you think about in your mind when you hear the word peace? What is the image that gets conjured up? Is it an end of war? Is it an end to conflict? Or is it quietness? Is it, is it stillness? Is it that feeling you have on a warm spring day when you're just out camping and, and you don't have a care in the world when all of your concerns have just melted away? Or is it restoration with, within relationships? I mean, we all want peace in our families. We all want peace in our marriages and our friendships. We all want peace with all those that we love. Or is peace being physically healthy? Where you feel good, where you feel whole. And we all know what that's like, right? There are those times in our lives when it just seems like the aches and pains are not there. And then there are the other times that remind us every day that they're there. Or is, is peace perhaps security? We live in a world right now that's very insecure. War is raging in Europe. We don't know what's going to happen with that. Our economy is faltering. We could have predicted that two years ago when we began to shut down the economy. There are warnings now of food shortages, which concerns us as Americans, but the ones that concern me the most are our brothers and sisters in third world countries who depend upon our excess. There's, there's a lot, it seems, today to be very anxious about. Would having security in insecure times, would that be what it means to have peace? The truth is, peace is important to all of us, no matter how we see it. We all want peace. We all work in some sense for peace. We would even sacrifice for peace. In fact, there are people who rewarded, you know, the coveted prize, the Nobel Prize of Peace, the Nobel Peace Prize. One of, uh, of which the comedian Stephen Wright once said, I would kill to win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> the truth is peace is important to us all. 
And it's something that we all want. It's something that we long for. No matter how we define it, we want it because, because we instinctively know what it is. Well, I have, I have good news for you this morning. I have the best news for you this morning. In Romans chapter 5, Paul declares that we can have what we so desperately want. True peace. Real life changing peace because we can have peace with God. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about this morning. Talking about the real peace that is available to us. The real peace that we can have with God. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's about as far as we're going to get today. (laughs) Just so you know. As you all know, I have a tendency to go long anyway, right? So we did read the verse 4 verses, but we'll get get to those in the coming weeks. But today we're going to spend most of our time talking about this. But I want you to notice, right? Paul says, we have been justified by faith. And because of that, we have peace with God. Now, before we get too far into the weeds in the text here, I want you to notice the word, therefore. As we say over and over again, we always need to pay attention to the conjunctions, especially when you're reading Paul's letters, because Paul is not just saying, you know, he's not just giving us proverbs in in singular abstract areas. He is connecting everything that he is talking about. Paul is actually beginning a very brand new section here, with the conjunction, therefore. And that tells us two important things. Number one, if I can get to my notes. Well, number one, it tells us that what Paul is about to say is inextricably connected with what he's already said. They are, they go together, which means we need to keep the context of this verse in mind. Paul's thoughts are building one upon another. Secondly, Paul is beginning to draw some conclusions now based on the things that he's already talked about and the things that he's already argued. His argument is moving from one major point to the next. In fact, you can remember Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church for three reasons. And the most important reason was was the fact that Paul wanted to clearly explain and unpack the gospel for the Roman church. He wanted to make sure that the Romans the Roman Christians had a complete understanding of what the gospel actually is. And so in this letter, Paul explains what the gospel is in chapters 1 through 4. And then he explains the blessings of the gospel, the blessings that the gospel gives in chapters 5 through 8. And then Paul gives a defense of the gospel against objections in chapters 9 through 11. And then finally, he will unpack how Christians ought to live in light of the gospel in chapters 12 through 16. And so right now, for us, we are in Romans 5, verse 1. And so we're in the transition from what the gospel is to the blessings given by God to those who believe the gospel. You see, the gospel brings blessings who put their faith in Christ. It's not just an abstract thing that that just happened in history. There's a cause and effect relationship there. 
Those who believe are blessed by God. And Paul begins to explain that. And so Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, in light of the truth of the gospel, that we are justified by faith, in light of that truth, we possess all of the blessings of the gospel. And the first and most important blessing of the gospel, the first and most important blessing that we're going to receive from God is peace with God. That's the essence of verse 1. Verse 1 transitions us from the explanation of the gospel to the blessings of the gospel. Right, And the blessing, Paul will actually take four chapters to unpack, by the way. I don't know if you realize that. Verses, chapters 5 through 8 is basically Paul telling us all the ways that God has blessed us because of the gospel. But verse 1, not only does Paul make this transition, but he's revealing to us the most important of those blessings, the most important blessing that we could ever receive from the gospel, peace with God. And I think this is the place that we need to linger for just a few minutes. Because this is the answer to the question. This is the answer to man's greatest need. What we need more than anything else in the world is peace with the one who created us. The blessing we need more than any other blessing is peace with the sovereign Lord of the universe. Why? Because of the wrath of God. Because the greatest problem that all of mankind faces is the fact that he is under the condemnation and justice and wrath of God. In fact, that's, a, that's where Paul began his gospel. If you remember, he began with the bad news, explaining, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. And then he spends the next part of three chapters explaining that all of mankind walks in that unrighteousness and ungodliness that brings about the wrath of God. All of mankind, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, are by nature, by who they are, children of wrath. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody's covered up in it. And to make it worse, God has promised justice. In Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 17, he says, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. They will know that I'm the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. David even recognized that in Psalm 711. He says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God's wrath doesn't go away simply forgetting it like sometimes we as parents do. I know for me, when I would do something wrong, I was just praying and for hoping that my dad would forget what I did. How many of you have been there? Come on, right? That's right. How many of you had your kids do that? And you're like, you can act like that, but I remember. Yeah. The problem is that, that the greatest problem facing all of humanity is the same one. It's universal, right? We are all sinners at odds with God. And because of that, his fierce anger and wrath hangs over all of our heads. His judgment looms over the horizon. That was the bad news of the gospel. But then as Paul explains in the good news, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
That is the good news of, of the gospel. God has made a way for us to be justified rather than to be condemned. And we are justified by faith in Christ alone. And the blessing that comes from believing the gospel, the blessing that comes from believing that truth is the wrath of God then is removed from us and is replaced then with the blessing of peace with God. Again, is our greatest need. The truth that we need to just come to terms with is we, we need God's, we need peace with God more than we need anything else. Sometimes I don't think we really think about that or understand that. We need peace with God more than anything else that we need. We need peace with God more than we need peace with other people. Be it our friends, be it our spouses, our family members, our, our co-workers. I mean, the fact is we can have peace with other people, but if you don't have peace with God, you really don't have anything long term. All you have is a temporary truce with the people around you that will ultimately count for nothing when you finally face God. Now, some people will try to appeal to unbelievers by promising that if you will just come to Jesus, if you'll just come to Jesus, he will make all of your relationships better and, and, will and, and he will reconcile you to all those that you love. Now, please understand, God absolutely can do that. I have witnessed God reconciling people. I've experienced God's reconciliation in my own life with people that I love. But the truth is, sometimes being reconciled to God means our relationships with other people will get worse. The peace with God at times will cost us something with other people. Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 10. In his own words, he said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come, bring, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have not, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And he goes on to say, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying, if you desire peace with people more than you desire peace with him, you're not worthy of him. You don't understand what the real problem is. Because what you and I need more than peace with people, as much as we, as much as we may want and desire that, what we need more than that is peace with God. Because if you don't have peace with God, you don't have anything but a temporary respite. That's it. You only have a temporary respite, respite that will descend into an eternity where you will have no peace at all. We need peace with God more than we need peace with other people. And we need peace with God more than we need peace with ourselves. We live in a generation where the focus is all on us, living our authentic selves and finding our real selves and living our own truths and being true to ourselves and Sometimes people who have the best of intentions will try to entice non-believers into making a decision for Christ, promising that if you put your faith in Jesus, then you will permanently forever have this internal peace where you'll never, ever be disturbed emotionally. 
that the rest of your lives will never, you'll never experience doubt or fear or anxiety or depression or struggle. And if you're a Christian who's actually been a Christian, you know, that's just a lie. I mean, it is true that God does offer us a peace that surpasses all understanding, that when all the world falls apart, that there is something that we hold on to that can get us through. But it does not promise, God has never promised that in this life that we're not going to suffer internally. We're not promised that we will not experience dark thoughts. We are not promised that we won't face depression and emotional turmoil at times. By the way, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, which everybody knows who Charles Spurgeon was, he suffered deep, long, enduring bouts of depression, as did Martin Luther. In fact, here's a little bit of trivia for you. Did you know that 70%, over 70% of pastors today battle debilitating depression at times, including this one? because of the demands of, of ministry, because of the demands of what it takes to love and shepherd God's people. Right? There is this sense at times, even pastors feel like they can never, ever let people know that they're struggling because they would think that there's something wrong with their relationship with God. Right? But God does not promise that we will always be at peace with ourselves, that we will never struggle emotionally. That is not in the Word of God. You will not find that verse. What we are promised is a peace with God that assures us that we will ultimately get through all of those things. That all those things will work out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Because understand, you can have the real best of mental health. A lot of people who aren't believers do have pretty good mental health. Self-assured, confident. You can live in a perpetual state of happiness. You can live self-assured. You can, you can live where you don't struggle or worry. But if you don't have peace with God, you will face the worst of depression and, and anxiety and fear known to man. But you'll do so for eternity. We need peace with God more than we need peace with ourselves. And we need peace with God more than we need peace with our culture. So many Christians, so many people that we love struggle to stand up against the culture because they want to simply to be seen as nice and tolerant. There is this idea in Christianity that there is the 11th commandment. And that is thou shalt be nice. Never mind the, the other 10. Because they want to be at peace with culture. They don't want to, they don't like the idea of a culture war. They don't, right? They just want to go along to get along. Thinking that if you'll just, if they'll just be at peace and if they'll just, you know, never make any waves and never stand up, that somehow by some way that their niceness will rub off on the rest of the world and, and the rest of the world will absorb Jesus by osmosis somehow. By the way, that's where the, where the phrase comes from. You know, preach the gospel all the time, and if necessary, use words. That's, that's the idea, that if you just live a good enough life, then, then people will hear the gospel in your actions, not your words. We need peace with God more than culture. Jesus himself was not at peace with his culture, by the way. You realize that, right? When you read the New Testament, he stood up against sin. 
He confronted people openly. He flipped over tables of the money changers. He made a whip and he chased out the merchants. All culturally acceptable stuff until Jesus came after them, right? He called out the cultural elites as a brood of vipers. Remember that too, by the way, when you think that Jesus only said nice things, he called people names. Christ called out the culture. He visibly stood against it, especially the part of culture that leads to death. We don't need peace with culture. We need peace with God. Now, understand, this isn't a call for us to be obnoxious jerks who go out there, you know, flipping over tables at somebody's house. You know what I mean? What this means is we still need to be in the world, but not of the world. And we need peace with God more than we need peace with our own government. This one here is getting tough. We still, we live at a moment in our country still where we can speak our minds. There is still freedom in that. And we can worship God as our conscience dictate. But that is changing visibly around us. We see it. It's happening. Our government is, is growing hostile towards those who have dissenting voices. If you don't believe me, just watch what's happening now. Our government is openly talking about reigning in free speech for the good of us all. That sounds like a book that was written a long time ago. And we have seen both the state and federal government attempting to regulate control of how we worship over the last couple of years here. Not to mention conservative evangelical Christians and reformed Christians are being labeled as those who are the oppressors to the oppressed. If you according to our country's embracing of critical theory, as a Christian, you are the hegemony, which means you are the majority, which means you're oppressing everyone else. That's just the setup to make us the enemy. Our government is growing and will continue to grow more and more hostile towards Christians. And because of that, many Christians have capitulated. That's why so many churches stayed closed for two years, by the way. There are lots of churches, I don't know if you realize, but there are lots of churches that actually stayed closed for two years. That's why so many churches are capitulating on things like sexuality and gender as well. There's threats of lawsuits that that threaten their internal harmony. This is why so many Christians try to, to separate their Christian life from their political life, thinking that those are two separate spheres, not realizing God is the Lord of all. Some will say, on the one hand, I'm, pro, I'm, I'm pro-life because I'm a Christian. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm pro-choice because of my political party's stance on abortion. And it's even ingrained in the school system now. People right now in every school district across the country are faced with doing what is right according to the word of God or doing what the government tells them to do. And because so many people want to be at peace with the government and because the government controls the money, So many people are capitulating because they want to be at peace with the government. I mean, that's what happens, right? I mean, the government controls the funding. They control your financial well-being. You have to make some tough choices. We need peace with God more than we need peace with the government. And we need peace with God more than we need peace with our world. There's this notion at times we forget That Jesus said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. So to understand, world peace in this life 
And in this era, for the Christian, peace on earth is not the goal. It never has been. Yes, we should all work toward peace. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, we'll live at peace with all, right? That's, that's our call, right? But we, we're not naive to think that that's going to be accomplished by us. Peace on earth is not the goal. Peace with God is the goal. We need, and what the rest of the world needs, is peace with God. By the way, if the world would make peace with God, then the world would have peace with itself. But until that happens, there will be no lasting peace on earth. Our greatest need has been and will be peace with God. And so Paul says that for those who have been justified by faith, they have the greatest blessing possible, the peace with God. And before we really kind of talk about what that means, I want you to see the connection here. Notice the grammar. This is really important, actually. Paul says, since we have been justified by faith. By the way, one of the things I didn't realize I'd need as a pastor is that that obnoxious little skill that was trying that was trying to be drilled in my head when I was a kid of diagramming sentences. I really wish I would have paid more attention back then, but hey. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, I know this is a straightforward cause and effect statement, but I want you to look a little closer. Notice the verbs. Have been justified, that is past tense. And, and have peace is present tense. In other words, what we need to understand is because we have been justified by faith in the past, something that's already been accomplished, we have then, as a result of that, in the present, peace with God, something that's ongoing. Our past justification brings us present peace, which kind of like hints at what I'm trying to get at. But but even that, there's there's an underlying truth in the Greek that's really kind of hard to grasp in English that's just under the surface. You see, the verb that gets translated as have been justified is what's called the aorist, passive participle. And I know you really wanted to know that this morning. <laughs> but what this tells us in the grammar is that being justified is not something that we did, right? That's the importance of the grammar. It's something done to us by God. It's, it's passive, for us. We are recipients of it. God is the one who does the justifying. He is the one who justified us. This goes along with what Paul has been saying the whole time. He does the justifying. And not only is that a statement of something God did, but the way that it's, the way that the tense is indicating that it's not something that just happened in the past, that it's a historical fact of something that happened in the past. It's an established historical fact. It's an unchangeable historical fact that happened in the past. In other words, if you have faith in Christ, you have been historically and unchangeably justified by the creator of the universe himself. That right there is worth the price of admission this morning. Because that right there should give you comfort. If you have faith, then you have been historically and unchangeably justified by the creator of the universe himself. He did it for you. God completely declared you righteous and washed away your sins permanently. It's done. As Jesus said, it is finished. 
If you have faith, you are without question justified. End of story. That is the point that Paul has been deliberately making from Romans 3.21 all the way to the end of chapter 4. We are justified by faith apart from works. Justification is an objective reality. It is more real than the wind that's blowing in Boron right now. And the language that Paul uses here is that justification is the work of God as a historical fact for those who believe. But then notice the corresponding result of that justification because we have been historically and truly justified by God in the past. We have, present tense, in this moment, peace with God. And this verb here is present tense, active indicative. And again, I know that you're excited about the Greek grammar, but what this means to us is having peace with God is also an established fact in the present tense. That's what indicative means. It's indicating a fact. It's not simply just a statement. It is true. It's a reality in this moment. If you have faith in Christ, you have in this moment peace with God. It's not that someday, hopefully, if you're good enough and you, and you do all the right things and attend church all your life, that you might have peace with God. No, you have it right now. And this is an objective reality also, meaning your peace with God is objectively real, which means peace with God exists whether you feel it or not. And this is really the heart of really, I think, where we need to come to. This is important for our assurance. This is important for our confidence. Peace with God is not a subjective thing that changes with the time and with the wind. It is objective and it's permanent. And this peace is not contingent then upon my fickle feelings or my ability to never sin or make God happy. This peace with God is contingent upon God and his ability to keep his promises by the way, which is the theme that Paul's been developing all this time. And because of that, when we as Christians struggle with sin and doubt and dark thoughts, we can still have confidence that we're at peace with God. Not because we feel like it in the moment, but because we believe the gospel. And if you believe the gospel then the promise is you are justified. And if you're justified, then the promise is you have peace with God. That's the promise that we can hold on to. So how can you know then you have peace with God? Because you feel like it because you're so close to him? No. By the way, if you're one of those people who's a Christian that right now feels really close to God, praise the Lord for that. But give it a minute. That's right. We don't know that we have peace with God because we feel it. We know that we have peace with God because God said it. If you believe the promise, I made you in the gospel, God says, you will be justified, which means you are counted as righteous and your sins are completely done away with. And if you were justified, then you now, then in this moment, present tense, are at peace with him. Even if it doesn't feel like it even in those moments when God feels so far away. How many of you have been there where you feel like God is really far away? Yeah. You see, relationship with God is not built on how you feel. Praise the Lord for that. 
It is built on what God has said in his word. I want to say that again. Your relationship with God is not built on how you feel. It is built on what God said in his word. In fact, I want you to say that with me. My relationship with God is not built on how I feel. But it's built on what God has said in his word. Your feelings will change. God's word never changes. And so when you find yourself struggling in the dark, if you wonder if God is mad at you and hates you, remember what he said. If you believe the gospel and put your faith in Christ, you are objectively justified. And if you are justified, you're objectively, without a doubt, you have true, lasting peace with God. It's a settled issue. You can rest in that truth. You can rest in that truth. So you can wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and tell yourself, no matter how bad you feel, I'm at peace with God. You can go to bed after a long, stressful day and close your eyes and turn to him in prayer and say, I know I'm at peace with you. You can achieve all the goals and have the very best day of your life. And at the end, remember, I'm at peace with God. And you can get the cancer diagnosis and you can hear about the loss of the loved one and the love of your life can walk out the door and you can feel like everything in the world is falling in around you and still rest assured that for all the chaos in your life, you still have peace with the one who created you. If you've been justified by faith, you possess, present tense, peace with the living and true God. That is the blessing that we so desperately need. The most important of all the blessings the gospel can bring. And let's just talk about why. The word peace in this text is translated from the Greek word, meaning, or Greek word, irenin which, by the way, is where we get the word Irenic, or the name Irene. And this word has a number of implications to it. And, and first of all, it can mean an end of hostility, right? That's what we often think about when we think about peace, is an end of conflict, an end of fighting, an end to war. Be it a family fight or a full-scale global conflict, we see peace as an end to that hostility. Which, by the way, is right. It is end of hostility between us and God, because Paul will say later on in, in uh, later on in this chapter, by the way, verse ten, he says, "For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life?" Paul says we were enemies of God. We were in conflict with God. Humans that were at odds with their creator. We, we were making war upon God by rebelling against him and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. By the way, what do you think that all this body mutilation is, is taking place right now in the world around us, especially the transgender body mutilation? It's a war with God, a war with the image of God in man. That's what it is. But all of us have been at war with God, engaging in every willful act of rebellion and sin. 
And because of that conflict, God's wrath, as we said, abided on us. God's wrath hung over our heads like a 10-ton weight ready to drop. We were not God's obnoxious neighbors that get under our skin sometimes. We were not God's irritating community members that are just hard to be around. We were not God's conceited co-workers that we just don't like to see. We were God's enemies. And this bears a little bit of unpacking because this is not how people typically describe themselves. Just ask people. Most people think, they don't think of themselves as enemies of God. Even the people who aren't, don't even believe in God, they wouldn't call themselves enemies of God. They would describe themselves generally as good people. Good people who make mistakes every once in a while. Right? That's how many of the world see it, and that's how many Christians themselves explain it. Many people think that, you know, that what's wrong with man is just we kind of goof up once in a while, that we stumble. A lot of people, I mean, it's really kind of funny, but a lot of people have this kind of sense or this impression that basically humanity is like a bunch of unruly, unruly teenagers who mean well, they just get into trouble and they still love their parents, right? And that God is a strict father who's just simply tired and irritated with their shenanigans. It's not it at all. Unless you have Christ, unless you have Christ, you are God's enemy. You're not part of his family. You're not one of his children. You're not one of his friends. You're an adversary. And the only relationship you have with God is an adversarial relationship. In fact, Cornelius Van Til points out, all of humanity is in covenant relationship with God one way or the other, either under grace or under his wrath. There's not an in-between where, yeah, kind of wrath, kind of grace, right? It's either one or the other. All of us, we're enemies with God, deserving for God to make war on us and giving us what we rightly deserve. But once we put our faith in Christ, that all changed. We were justified, and the moment we were justified, we then were at peace with God. The hostility between us and God has been ended. The war is over. God won, and thereby implication, we won with him. God's wrath and anger against us is done away with. That is the truth that you can walk in. His justice has been satisfied by Christ on the cross. Peace with God does bring an end to conflict. That is a huge blessing. But the word peace here means so much more than simply an end of conflict. The Greek word that's used here actually has a root word that means to join or tie together. What was once separated is joined back together. This peace with God is more than a truce between warring enemies. It is, in effect, real reconciliation. It is the bringing back together of God and man in a loving covenant relationship. A relationship that was separated, that has now been brought back to whole. As, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and in trusting to us the message of reconciliation. God through Jesus Christ was not simply putting an end to hostility and signing a truce agreement with us. He 
is reconciling us back to God. And the idea of reconciliation brings a sense of restored connection, restored relationship. Because in the end, that's what we want, right? If you're a parent, parents particularly, I think, understand this. I think everybody understands this, but I think parents have a special understanding of this. If you are a parent and you have a child that you're at odds with, right, and there's just deep wounds, you don't simply want an end to hostility. It's not what you're after. I mean, you'll take it, but that's not what you're after. What you want is a restoration in relationship. That's what you really want. You want a restoration in that former intimacy. You want a restoration in that sense of closeness that you once had. You want what's broken to be mended. That's reconciliation. Reconciliation in families and between friends is something that we crave. Because restoration of a deep connection brings to us so much satisfaction and joy. By the way, when you experience reconciliation in, in a family or with your friends, you need to take a snapshot picture of what that looks like and understand that's a shadow of the reconciliation we have with God when we put our faith in Christ. The division between God and man that first took place when Adam sinned and was cast out of the garden and cast out of God's blessed presence, right? that division has been removed and it's been erased that's the reality, by the way, symbolized by the tearing of the veil in the temple when Christ died. If you remember in the Gospels, that story, inside of the temple of Jerusalem, there was a huge veil, a huge curtain. It was like 30 feet high and like several inches thick. And this, this curtain separated the holy place where the, where the priests were allowed to go into from the most holy place, where the place where God's covenant or his uh, um his his seat his um, judgment seat resided where his presence was the ark of the covenant was there and it was a symbol that god and man were separated that veil was a symbol of of the division between god and man in fact what was on that curtain was a an image of a cherubim to remind mankind of what happened in the garden that man was put out of the garden and what what actually guarded the way an angel, a cherubim. This temple symbolized the garden and the rest of the world in man's separation from God. It was a visual representation of the fact that man and God were not in close fellowship anymore. Their relationship had been torn apart by sin. The intimacy that man once had with God was lost. God's favorable presence was removed. But when Christ died, the Gospels tell us that the veil was supernaturally torn, not from the bottom to the top, but from top to the bottom. And it meant that the barrier between God and man that separated us was gone. God and man had been made at peace again as they were joined together through Christ. Peace with God means reconciliation, but it also means wholeness that word conveys a sense of wholeness what is missing has it been restored what is lacking has been put back and and we have been made whole blaise pascal is credited with writing the quote 
There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only the God, only by God the Creator who made, uh, made known through Jesus Christ. In other words, we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And nothing can fill that. The truth is we were created in the image of God. And we were created to glorify God through a relationship with God. In fact, as our catechism tells us in question number two, man's chief end, man's purpose for life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man was created to be in relationship with God. And once man and God were separated, a huge part of mankind's self and his identity became missing. That's why mankind instinctively looks to worship something. Everybody worships something. Be it false gods or fame or money or sex or relationships or hobbies. Man, is his heart is an idol factory because we're looking for something to worship. We have an internal need to be in relationship with God. That's why mankind seeks to fill the void all the time by himself. That's why his appetites are insatiable. That's why, his, that's why ultimately nothing ever satisfies, by the way. Nothing. There's something fundamentally missing. You can never have enough money. Have you ever noticed that? It will not fill the void in your heart. You cannot have enough experiences. Right? A person cannot stay high long enough. You cannot have enough relationships. That's why people feel lonely in a crowded room. That is why people feel sad and anxious and lost, even though they have everything they could ever want or need. That's why celebrities regularly commit suicide. They have it all. You were created not for you and for your own happiness and purpose. You were created for God. And until you are restored in right relationship with God, you will never, ever, ever be whole. Ever. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how awesome your marriage is. It doesn't matter how much money you make or how well-liked you are. I used to think that my problem was just not enough people liked me. It's not the problem. You will always feel broken, lost, and empty without God. And the worst part is you will feel that way for eternity. You want to know what hell is like? It's not just the fire. It's the feeling of never, ever being satisfied. It is the, the never knowing contentment. It is always feeling empty and pointless and hopeless. It's never knowing peace. That's what hell is. But to those who are justified, who have peace with God, they are made whole. They are made complete. That is why Christians can lose everything, but still find contentment. That's why Christians can be tortured and beaten and still rejoice. As those Christians, those Egyptian Christians, were marched out on the beach by those ISIS members, they were singing hymns of joy as they were being beheaded. Why? Because they were at peace with God. They knew where their hope was. For those who are in Christ, they have it all. You understand that? For those who have Christ, have it all because you have peace with God and you have been made whole. And peace with God and in, 
is an end of hostility. It's reconciliation. It is wholeness. But it's also being in a state of harmony with God. The Greek word that Paul uses here is a Greek word, but it still conveys the idea, the Jewish idea of shalom. Right? And that word conveys a sense of well-being, a sense of balance, a sense of harmony. Again, we were created in the image of God, which means we were created to reflect him. But that image was distorted by sin. And so the outworking of our lives then has been a life that's out of sync with God, out of tune with God, out of kilter with his created intention for us. That's why we see the destructiveness of sin. When we follow sin, it's not that sin is heinous to God. It's destructive to us. And just like how shattered mirrors reflect a disordered uh, image, and just like how a sour note can turn sweet harmony into a painful, shrill noise, sin has distorted the harmony between us and God. Right? Now, to be sure, broken mirrors still reflect images. And there can still be music even when somebody's playing off key. But, but we understand that something is still painfully wrong. But when we are restored in our relationship with God, that distorted image begins to come back into shape. And the harmony between us and, the, and God begins to come back into tune. And what you'll see is the result of our lives will begin to reflect that harmony, that peace with God restores us, and the fruit of that works its way out into the rest of our lives, hence the fruit of the Spirit. This peace reshapes our lives and it strengthens us. This peace encourages us. This peace comforts us. Our whole self, body, mind, and spirit becomes revitalized and renewed as we draw nearer to God. And our desires will begin to begin to synchronize themselves with God's will for us. And if you're a Christian, you know that, right? You didn't just decide to choose to want to do things the way you do them. You just suddenly became more attuned to what God's will for your life is, and you have a desire to do that. And we begin to think, love the things that God loves, and we begin to desire the thing that God desires. This is the peace that God offers to those who will believe. And this peace is the peace that we have the moment that we are justified by our belief. Notice, but notice Paul says here, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the part that we need to get serious about, though. We live in a postmodern pluralistic society, and most people believe that all religions are valid and that all roads lead to God. In fact, there are some... I've actually recently had conversations with some people who call themselves Christians who say that they believe that, that all paths lead to God and that, that a person, you know, if they're just simply sincere enough, can come to saving faith even if they practice, you know, a false theology. But again, look at what Paul says here. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ our master, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that peace with God comes through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. You see, we can't have peace without him. 
This is the truth as Christians we must hold firm and fast to. Notice Paul has already made this point. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Also in 3.26 he says, It is... It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might, he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In chapter 4, Paul says, It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul makes it clear that justification and ultimately our peace with God the peace that God offers us comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And even Jesus said that himself. In John 14, 6, he says the words we should all be very familiar with. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Those words are unambiguous. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men which, by which we must be saved. You cannot have peace with God unless you have Christ. I want to say that again. I think it's one of those things we just need to etch into our hearts. You cannot have peace with God unless you have Christ. Or as the old saying goes, no Jesus, no peace. You know, no is in knowledge, right? But on the other hand, no Jesus or no peace. There is no peace without, with God, without Christ. And we must know Christ. We must know him personally. One of the things that we get caught up in as Christians is, is that we want to be so inclusive you know, as possibly as we possibly can. And what we'll do is we'll believe that every person who says the name Jesus somehow is saved. Oh, he, he believes, he said he believes in Jesus. He said that Jesus is his savior. The problem is there are people who say that, who say the name of Jesus, but believe that he is a created being. They say that Jesus was a former angel that got turned into a human. Other people believe that Jesus was a literal spirit baby of God the Father who then come, came to the earth and lived just like us humans and earned his way to become exalted. Other people believe that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all simultaneously, all at once. Others believe that Jesus is a mighty prophet that bore witness to, to God, but is nothing more than that. You see... Just because someone says they believe the name Jesus doesn't mean they believe in the person who came to save us. The name Jesus is not the object of our faith. The name Jesus is not the object of our faith. It is the name of the object of our faith. The person, the incarnate God who came to the earth to rescue us, that is the object of our faith. And we must know him to know peace. But for those who don't, for those who do know him, for those who trust in the divine son of God and his finished work on the cross, they are justified by that faith. And because they have been justified, they have possessed in this moment an everlasting peace with God. Now, as we 
think about this and we apply this to our lives, what do we do? Well, first of all, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you have not been justified, if you have not truly understood the gospel, my call always is repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ came in the world to do the things for you that you couldn't do for yourself. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live to earn for your righteousness that you could never earn. And then he died to make atonement for your sin. And then God raised him up three days later, proving that the debt has been paid and his wrath had been satisfied. Repent and believe the gospel. But for those who do have a relationship with God, I have three things I'm going to offer you as we leave. Number one, trust the peace you have with God. Trust it. If you have been justified by faith, you have peace. I've said it multiple times. And the reason why I've said it multiple times is because you need to hear it multiple times because you're going to walk out of here and there'll be times you have a tendency to forget that. You need to remember you have peace with God. Trust that. God keeps his promises and you were promised peace with him through Christ even if you don't feel like it. Even if you feel far away from God at times, even when it doesn't seem like, like there's peace anywhere else in the world to be had, trust the fact that you have peace with God because he said you do. And God's word is true. God's word is sure. God's word does not change. You can take it to whatever bank you want to. You can depend upon it. Trust it. Secondly, Walk in the peace with God, meaning let the peace of God begin to shape your life. It's one thing to know it. It's a whole other thing for that to then change how we live. Oftentimes, the conflicts we have with the world around us and the struggles we have with other people comes from forgetting the fact that we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we really have everything we need. And so all this other stuff we're getting worked up about really isn't that important. We forget that even though things in this life are not always the way we want, the greatest problem you're ever going to face has already been solved. You have peace with the sovereign of the universe. That means all of your problems you face now are simply temporary inconveniences. Even in the big ones. Ultimately, that's what they are. They're temporary. Now, I didn't say that you shouldn't deal with your problems. I'm not saying that. It's just to say that we deal with them as people who are blessed beyond imagination. It's a whole different standard for us. This should make us more patient, right? It should make us more loving. It should make us more gracious. It should cause us to be more loving towards the people that are hard to love. And there are a lot of those. Am I right? Why? Because the problems we face are temporary. Remember what Paul says. He's going to say this in Romans 8.18. I consider that the present sufferings are not comparable to the glory with, that will be revealed in us. So walk in the peace of God. And then finally, share the peace that we have with God. Share it by loving those around you. Share it by being an example of people who are content with a life that they're living. 
There's a lot of people out there that are chaotic and crazy right now. Their minds are just all over the place. They're swimming in all their problems. And they need someone to come alongside them and love them and let them see what true peace really is. And then we need to help them see that peace by sharing with them the gospel. That we understand that the gospel is not simply just us living a life, that it's us actually saying the words. And not to be confrontational, not to be mean. We do that with, with grace, but we still have to say the words. That there is but one way to have peace, and that is through Christ and Him alone. So trust in the peace of God. Walk in the peace of God and share the peace of God. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.